This is the gift that he decided to give the American people. What the hell is going on? Wrong. Wrong. Drugs? Wrong. Healthcare? Wrong. A wall? Wrong. Republicans? Wrong. Democrats? Wrong. Wrong. They're not Wrong. sending their best. Wrong. Best, best, best. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 18 of your not always weekly, weekly breakdown of political news and current events from the perspective of liberty and logic. Just a quick reminder, if you do enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, like, review it, but most importantly, send it to a friend. Send it to somebody. You got a mother, a brother, a neighbor, a friendly dentist, whoever. Send this podcast to one person. That's all I'm asking. Before we get into the main stuff that I want to talk about, just a couple short things. The Senate impeachment trial is well underway. Not a tremendous amount has happened so far. There are a few extra bits of information coming out that we hadn't heard before. Trump was being recorded when he called for the ouster of Ambassador Yovanovitch. And at the time, he was apparently at a dinner with multiple people, including Lev Parnes, who he claims to have never met. Now, what kind of impact this will have overall, it's kind of hard to say but there is at least somewhat new information coming. It seems that a good chunk of Trump's defense so far is basically, I didn't really know I couldn't do that, and shame on you for not explaining it to me better. Also, Mitch McConnell has claimed that this whole process is only going to last about two weeks. So hopefully we can roll through it quick and whatever happens happens and we can be done. But I'll probably talk about that a little more next week. Hopefully there's actually something interesting to say. Also, coming out of the weird world of politics, Tulsi Gabbard has filed a $50 million defamation suit against Hillary Clinton. If you remember, last October, Clinton was on a podcast when she said that Gabbard was basically working for the Russians and that she was going to launch a third-party run to destabilize the Democratic chances. So whatever the weird animosity is between the two of these people, we're now on the next level. Gabbard put out a statement on the lawsuit saying in part, Despite my lifetime of service to our country, Hillary Clinton has essentially tried to portray me as a traitor to our country. If Hillary Clinton and her allies can successfully destroy my reputation, even though I'm a war veteran and a sitting member of Congress, then they can do it to anybody. In fact, that's exactly the message Hillary and her powerful elite friends want to send to you. Hillary Clinton and her allies want you to know that if you dare cross them, they will destroy your reputation as well. I will not allow this blatant effort to intimidate me or other patriotic Americans into silence to go unchallenged. This is why I filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. And obviously the Clinton camp has just dismissed this as ridiculous. And I'll be honest, I mean, I, I enjoy the story, but nobody really believes that Gabbard's going to get money from Clinton for this. I mean, it's a very grand statement, I guess, to just make a point, to call her out for talking shit, but it's clearly just a publicity thing. And Gabbard is uh, all but out of the presidential running at this point. She didn't make the last debate. She's still polling super low. I don't want to think that this is just for that kind of attention, but... I don't know for what more it could be. The main thing I wanted to get into this week was the Virginia gun rally. Tens of thousands of people from all walks of life gathered in the streets of Richmond this past Monday. At least 95% of them showed up for the sole purpose of protesting Virginia's proposed onslaught of gun control measures. 
This includes three proposed regulations that had recently passed the state Senate. SB 35 allows localities to ban guns from public events and permitted gatherings. SB 69, nice, which would limit handgun purchases to one a month or a 30-day period. And SB 70, which would require a background check on all private firearms transfers, which is basically what they mean when they talk about universal background checks. Wherever you buy a gun, you just run into a guy at a flea market or something, buy a gun off of him. You have to go through some sort of process to get a background check done before you can even do that. Originally, there were a number of other bills proposed, but several were deemed similar enough to be absorbed into one another. And at least one bill, uh, SB 16, was aimed at completely banning assault rifles, high-capacity magazines, bump stocks, and silencers. That was struck down or rescinded almost immediately. Now, they make it sound like as soon as they put it up, they realized that they had no chance. They didn't really want to spoil the political capital. But I would be very surprised if they don't try to push that one again a little bit down the road. Governor Northam has promised there's a lot more on the way as part of his comprehensive package of gun legislation. And that became more evident just two days after the rally when the state Senate passed their red flag legislation with a narrow win of 2119. And it now goes to the House, which it will almost certainly pass. And of course, Northam's going to sign off on it. The real story there will be once they actually try to enforce it. With Virginia already having so much tension over guns, we'll have to see. If you listened to the show last week, you know about the feeling of impending doom that had apparently fallen over Governor Northam, leading to a declaration of a state of emergency. Fences were put up, security was strengthened, they brought in armored vehicles, and they even had snipers on the roof of the Capitol building. All of it in preparation for the bloodbath that was surely to ensue from having gun owners and Second Amendment advocates gathering in such large numbers. But it turns out, much like the Joker or pretty much anything else the corporate media tries to hype up, everything turned out fine. And when I say they tried to hype it up, I mean they were putting in work. MSNBC's Craig Melvin said, quote, They put white nationalists, militia groups, and supporters of background checks for guns all in one place. A lot of folks, and justifiably so, are worrying about a repeat of Charlottesville 2017. So again, they lead with things like white nationalists to try to paint a very specific picture. As I mentioned last week, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were some at the rally that would be considered actual white nationalists. So that's true. But if they were there, they were a very, very small percentage of the group. And from what I can tell, they made no effort to announce or push that sort of ideology. But this kind of mischaracterization was everywhere. Ben Collins at NBC News tried the same thing. He tweeted out some unsolicited advice for journalists at the event, saying, quote, Reporters covering tomorrow's white nationalist rally in Virginia, I'm absolutely begging you, verify information before you send it out tomorrow. Even if it's a very sensational rumor you heard from a cop, don't become a hero in neo-Nazi propaganda circles with made-up stuff. So, first off, there is no white nationalist rally. Even if there had been a large, boisterous white nationalist presence there, still doesn't make it a white nationalist rally. Secondly, you shouldn't have to tell reporters to verify information. Granted, running with bullshit intel is much more prevalent these days, but I don't think Twitter advice is going to fix that. Several people replied to Collins to let him know how ridiculous his assertions were. Stephen Gutowski from Free Beacon responded, quote, Tomorrow's event is in no way a white nationalist rally. 
It is not organized by racists, and they won't be in any way a significant portion of the attendees. Yet, this writer is elevating them while smearing the regular people who will actually be there. After a bit of the back and forth, Gutowski added, quote, I agree there is a danger of extremists co-opting the event, but can't you see how labeling it a white nationalist rally when that really isn't the case literally accomplishes that goal for them? Would you label the Women's March an anti-Semitic rally because anti-Semites have tried to co-opt it? Collins later deleted the tweet, by the way. Twitter has the best examples of this ridiculous narrative. Trish Zornio posted, quote, Pro-gun activists and registered hate groups are descending on Richmond to rally. Violence is all but expected. Is it any wonder that they chose MLK Day? I'm not sure what she means by registered hate groups. But the reason the rally is on Martin Luther King Day is because the VCDL has their lobby day the same time every year. The idiocy continues. David Rothschild, uh, an economist who has written for the New York Times, also tweeted his interpretations of the rally. Quote, The white man, and yes, they are all white men, because non-white men would not be safe in this crowd, are explicitly terrorizing us. To demonstrate to lawmakers they will cause more terror if they pass gun safety measures the voters wanted and voted them into office to pass. The first thing to note here is that this tweet was sent out at 6.30 in the morning. There's no way to know anything about the rally crowd at this point. And guess what? There were a lot of non-white people there. More than that, a fair amount of black women, which is very surprising for a white nationalist rally. There were also several members of Black Lives Matter participating. One of the pictures later posted to their Instagram had the caption, quote, It's images like these that the news media refuses to put out about yesterday. Don't let the mainstream media spin you. There were all walks of life in Richmond yesterday, standing against a blackface governor in the name of the Constitution. The African-American community will be most affected by any red flag laws. This was all just an elaborate ruse to take everyone's mind off the scandal. Hashtag stay woke. There were also many people, signs, and flags supporting the Second Amendment for the LGBT community. All in all, it was clearly more diverse than they wanted you to believe, and it was definitely more diverse than the last debate stage, I can tell you that. Was that petty? It came out a little petty. An estimated 22,000 people showed up, many of them openly carrying weapons, sometimes multiple weapons. Handguns, hunting rifles, ARs. One guy, Brandon Lewis, you've probably seen his picture, had a giant-ass Barrett 50 cow. And it seems like it would have been a pain in the ass to haul around a rally all day, but the dude was clearly proud of it, and he loved the attention. I'm told he owns a shooting range in upstate New York. So if you're in that area, maybe look him up. In spite of the much, much larger turnout and the escalated tensions, the event ended as peacefully as any that the Virginia Citizens Defense League had put on in all of the years prior. There was no violence of any kind, much less involving guns. There was only one single arrest. A woman was arrested and charged with a single felony count of wearing a mask in public. That's it. And for the record, that's really stupid. Like, I hope they drop that charge. Either way, though, that many firearms in one relatively small area, after all that buildup, and you catch some woman up on a mask charge? Really? The only person that seemed at all interested in starting trouble or making threats was one guy. He claimed to be just an average libertarian, sarcastically calling out another guy for talking about revolution. But he starts getting loud with this guy. And he's like, heck yeah, you want to start the revolution today? You want to hop over that fence and kill that guy? At which point the crowd instantly turns on him. They call him out for stirring stuff up. They call him an instigator. They tell him it's a peaceful protest. Another guy calls him a punk and an infiltrator. And then they told him to get the fuck out. So it's not just that it was calm. 
there were people actively working to keep the calm. Also a part of the gathering were the Lightfoot Militia, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, state politicians. Dan, taxationist theft Berman was there in his big yellow hat. Also world-renowned crazy person Alex Jones, who arrived in his own armored vehicle. While there were minimal counter-protesters, a local Antifa group did make an appearance. And I think I may have touched on this last week, but they were actually there supporting the rally. Which, one, good for them. Two... I will always stress this point. If you find common ground with someone that you normally disagree with, work that shit. You can hate each other on 99% of issues, but if you agree on one, put that other shit aside and work together on the one thing. You can go back to fighting each other afterwards. Three, this goes along with the bullshit the media was pushing about the rally. There were plenty of people on the right posting misinformation about Antifa coming to the event claiming that they had plans to attack people, that they were only pretending to be on their side, yada yada. Of course, it always came from a very reliable but secretive source. One post that was being circulated claimed that the information was originally from Tom DeWeese at the American Policy Center, but I can't find anything that proves that. The post read, quote, I'm in Richmond and have just received information from a very reliable source concerning Monday's rally against the legislature's gun grab. Antifa has rented seven buses to bring their thugs in to cause trouble. The report says they will be wearing MAGA hats and wearing NRA garb. They will pretend to be pro-gun people. Meanwhile, others posing as Democrats holding anti-gun signs will stand on the side. The Antifa thugs pretending to be pro-gun will attack the sign holders, making it look like the pro-gun people have started violence. This is the plan. One guy in the comments pointed out that he'd heard that they were actually coming to help but he was quickly overrun with some not-so-friendly reminders that Antifa is not your friend. They are fascists funded by George Soros. People kill me. To sum it up, the rally was a success for what it was. I'm not sure anyone really believes that it changed much of anything. I don't think Governor Northam saw it on TV and thought, wow, maybe I've been wrong about guns this whole time. But rallies like this are still a good thing. It's good to get together with like-minded individuals for a cause that you believe in. It keeps people motivated and focused, and it was also a success because even with so much opposition, they were still able to make their point in an organized and peaceful way. Making so many people look stupid in the process is just a bonus. I think it's also important to point out that unlike a lot of other protests and rallies that other groups have put on over the years, the Richmond rally picked up their own trash. If you've ever seen these videos of the aftermath of large-scale protests, even ones protesting pollution and advocating green causes, they leave trash everywhere. Overflowing trash cans, it's all over the streets, it's in the grass. It's absurd. But the people in Richmond left some exceptionally clean streets behind. There are even videos going around of some big bearded gun-toting guy walking around with trash bags, politely asking everyone to dispose of their trash. Two guys were peeling up the uh, Gun Saves Live stickers that people had dropped. Personally, I think the whole event made a very positive statement. Clearly not everyone agreed. Two separate articles that I just happened to come across both came out two days after the rally and both very similar in theme and writing. One was a Vice article called Holding a City Hostage is Peaceful Now and one in GQ titled That Pro-Gun Rally in Virginia Wasn't Exactly Peaceful. Peaceful in quotes. Both articles very dramatically described the rally. And while both make the point that nothing happened at the rally, they stress how scary it was and how things could have happened. From the GQ article, quote, No one was shot. 
a frankly extraordinary turn of events given the sheer amount of weaponry, the density of the crowd, and the weapons stuffed casually into backpacks or held loosely in the crooks of pale arms. Now, it was obviously cold as hell in Virginia on the 20th. Everybody's covered up, but you gotta paint a very evocative picture with the pale arms. It is myopic at best to describe the Monday event as peaceful. There was, it was true, an absence of immediate bloodshed. But what abounded in that armed and insurrectionist sea of humanity was the promise that bloodshed might happen at any time should the will of the mob be thwarted. Now, keep in mind that almost immediately after the rally, they passed more gun control. Like, the will of the mob is thwarted as fuck in Virginia. No uprising, no grand insurrection, nothing. On Monday itself, the sea of armed men kept the city in a kind of artificial stillness. Not safety, but fear. There is a difference between peace that consists of calm and security and the false peace of being held under threat. One may be silent when held at gunpoint, but it is not the silence of contentment. It is the silence of mortal terror. I'll point out that, I mean, this whole article is ridiculous. It's, it's just very over the top, but it's well written. They close out the article with, Monday was a day of a clenched fist raised in menace. Rather than be lulled by the temporary absence of bloodshed, Americans would do better to be poised for the inevitable falling of the blow. And I understand that, you know, not everybody's comfortable with guns and that kind of thing. I get that. But if, what if, is the bar for what makes something peaceful, then where does that really go? You can what if anything. But like I said, the facts are nothing happened. It was peaceful. Given the situation, I'm not sure what else you'd ask for. While we're on the subject of guns and gun control, I wanted to talk about two other points that I, I feel are too easily missed in these conversations. Mostly because people from both sides get into their routine and they fail to take in new information or even new points that could support their argument. I intended to talk about them as separate issues, but they cross paths, so this may end up being a little more blended. The first point, which I'm glad is starting to get a little more attention lately, is that gun control, on top of being an infringement on your rights and generally bullshit, is pretty racist. And it's a fact that a lot of people shrug off initially. Partly because when everything gets called racist, it's, it's hard to take in a new accusation seriously. But it's glossed over a lot, mostly because it makes people feel bad. Gun control advocates don't want to think about that shit. Being primarily on the left, they get the most uncomfortable at the thought of being racist. Then people on the right don't want to admit that it's racist because then they have to think about why it's racist in the first place. So why is it racist in the first place? Well, when you're enslaving or otherwise being pretty terrible to a group of people, you really don't want them to have weapons. You don't want people who may be sympathetic to their situation to have weapons either. Not only does that make it much easier to subjugate an unarmed people, but even once you give up on the whole slavery thing, you would have to at least wonder what sort of retaliation you might face should they suddenly become armed. In that long period after slavery had been abolished, but yet wasn't really over, that's when this really started. Prior to the 14th Amendment, at least eight states had laws prohibiting gun ownership by non-white free men, and at least three additional states had such restrictions in their state constitutions. Even after the states were no longer allowed to explicitly say non-whites couldn't own guns, plenty of people still found ways of discouraging it. 
One way they commonly did that was to impose harsher punishment on certain people for gun-related violations. Think of it like mandatory minimum sentencing in the 1800s. Regardless of the laws, guns were still seen as the best form of defense, especially among the most likely to need it. Frederick Douglass felt that the best response to the Fugitive Slave Act was a good revolver. And in 1892, Ida B. Wells wrote, quote, The only times an Afro-American was assaulted and got away has been when he had a gun and used it in self-defense. She would later drive the point even further by adding, quote, A Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. A group so in need of the means of self-defense, and yet taking such risk by even having it, is really the root of the conflicting emotions about guns that so many communities have today. Charles Cook wrote in the New York Times in 2014, quote, By rights, the Second Amendment should serve as a totem of African Americans' full citizenship and enfranchisement. For centuries, firearms have been indispensable to black liberation as a crucial a defense against tyranny for Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. as for Sam Adams and George Washington. Today, however, many black Americans have decidedly mixed relationship with the right to bear arms. Martin Luther King was famously denied a concealed weapons permit after his house was bombed, but armed supporters stood guard at his home. The famous photo of Malcolm X holding the rifle and looking out the window is a clear indication of his willingness to defend himself with the tools at his disposal. But really... The Black Panthers were the first organization to fully embrace this idea. Realizing that they couldn't depend on the police, they armed themselves and started neighborhood patrols. They even started policing the police, often standing off to the side and shouting legal advice whenever the cops pulled somebody over. They were able to protect themselves, their neighborhoods, and even ward off abuse from the police because they knew and utilized their rights. And this was much easier because in 1960s California, it was legal to carry loaded weapons as long as they were visible. Of course, that changed once the Panthers started using them to their advantage. Don Mulford, a Republican state assemblyman for Alameda County, which includes Oakland, decided that people carrying around loaded guns was just too dangerous. Purely an issue of public safety, of course. To protest the obvious move to disarm them, a number of Black Panthers decided to just ride down to the Capitol, fully armed, and express their opposition. Recently elected Governor Ronald Reagan was about to meet with some schoolchildren when cars pulled up, about two dozen Black Panthers get out carrying guns, and they just walked into the Capitol building. They made a statement about their right to be armed and that they were against the way the legislature was trying to keep Black people disarmed and powerless. And that was pretty much it. There was no violence. They just made their point, and it was over. But the demonstration actually had the opposite effect. Mulford promised to push the bill even faster, and he added extra wording to keep anyone from bringing firearms into a Capitol building again, which is one of the main reasons you can't take guns into government buildings now because the Black Panthers scared the shit out of Ronald Reagan. Both Ronald Reagan and the NRA heavily supported the bill. And this is where my second overall point gets mixed in. The Republicans and the NRA both paint themselves as champions for gun rights, but neither are to be relied on by anyone. They are only supportive when it's convenient or when there is something in it for them. And I'll get back to that in a second. But... Reagan, the patron saint of Republicans everywhere, he was more than happy to sign the law. He called guns a ridiculous way to solve problems that had to be solved among people of goodwill. He also added that no hunter or sportsman would ever walk around with their gun loaded, so this law would not hurt honest citizens. You see the way subtle language works there? So, that's pretty much the racist history of gun laws, but what about now? I mean, they're not passing gun laws just because of black people now, right? 
not really, but the issue now is that the police still focus on poor neighborhoods and minorities when they enforce pretty much any law. Like look at uh, Stop and Frisk in New York. It was supposed to be this grand plan to prevent people from carrying guns and weapons because this was after 9-11 and everybody's scared all the time. And when people were scared, perfect time for new laws. Presumably the cops would check anyone that looked like they may be committing or about to commit a crime, etc. But who do they actually stop? The police would say that they would over-monitor high-risk areas, which really means poor neighborhoods. Stats show that they mostly frisked black and Latino suspects, and I say mostly by like a fair margin, uh, with minimal results in stopping or preventing crime. Keep in mind, between 2003 and 2013, they were stopping hundreds of thousands of people a year. In 2011, they stopped and frisked almost 700,000 people. What the hell? But the war on drugs works the same way. We know what neighborhoods suffer. You can pass gun laws because you're scared of school shooters or Nazis or whatever, but who do you think actually deals with the downside of tougher laws? Racist past, racist present. And people will argue, especially people from the left, that the present is different because it's an unintentional effect. But it doesn't go over any better just because your head's up your ass. So going back to the NRA and the Republicans, maybe you're thinking that uh, their support of the Mulford Act was something of an outlier. I mean, it was the 60s, the world was changing, they were just behind, whatever. Or maybe since gun control wasn't such a hot topic back then, it was easier for them to get it wrong. Surely they're better at protecting gun rights for everybody now. Not so much. Republicans still cave on gun control all the time. Lindsey Graham has voiced support for red flag laws, arguably the most dangerous gun control measure. As has Trump, who was also against things like bump stocks and suppressors. And don't forget his line about taking the guns first and worrying about due process second. Even Republican representative and dollar store bond villain Dan Crenshaw pushed for red flag laws. And then he tried to defend them on Twitter, basically saying, it's okay guys, these are Republican red flag laws. I'm not saying that Republicans as a whole don't do anything to protect gun rights. A few of them are fine in that regard. But they're not reliable, especially as a group. You can't trust that just because they have an R next to their name that they care about your Second Amendment rights. And it's the same thing with the NRA. They've done good work at times, but they've also been very selective about when and where they pick a fight. And to an extent, I get it. They make their money by lobbying, and if there's no fight, there's no reason to lobby anyone. When gun control makes the news, gun sales go up, membership to the NRA goes up, they have more reason to exist. I'll give you a good example. When the Trump administration banned bump stocks, Three gun rights organizations, uh, it was the Gun Owners of America, the Firearms Policy Coalition, and the National Association for Gun Rights, all engaged in a legal battle with the ATF in an attempt to prevent the ban. The NRA sent out emails telling everybody how terrible it was and asking for donations. That's it. The NRA has actually supported hundreds of gun control laws since 2012. Good things they may have done aside, does that sound like a group that you can always trust to have your back? One of the more well-known examples of NRA silence is the case of Philando Castile. For anybody not familiar, uh, Castile was pulled over in Minnesota back in 2016 for having a broken taillight. During the initial conversation, Castile, who had a legal permit to carry a weapon, told the officer that he had a gun. This is something that a lot of concealed permit classes will tell you to do. Seconds later, Castile was shot and killed. Also in the car was his girlfriend, who caught video of the aftermath, and their four-year-old daughter. The whole interaction took about 40 seconds. There are a lot of details to the story, including the officer giving 
somewhat contradictory instructions, becoming panicked, the theory that if Castile or the officer had done a number of things differently, on and on. And this is a whole conversation in itself, tying into other things like police shootings in general. But what makes it pertinent here is that the NRA was hesitant to get involved. Their initial statement, which didn't even come out immediately, was basically that they support concealed carry and that it's a tragedy, but they don't really want to say anything without having all the details. And it just seems that at the very least, they would want to comment a little more on the fact that Castile was not only a gun owner, but that he was carrying it legally and well within his rights. Maybe take the opportunity to address the issue in a way that others could learn from and hopefully avoid tragedies like this in the future. And contrary to the initial criticism, I'm not implying that this was a racially motivated decision. The NRA has come to the aid of black people before. Uh, example, Otis McDonald had to sue the city of Chicago for the right to own a handgun for self-defense. The NRA was happy to help out. Better example, Shanine Allen was a black single mother from Philly. Uh, she was traveling to New Jersey with her family. She had recently bought a gun for protection after she was robbed twice. She gets pulled over, and similar situation, she realizes she has her gun on her, so she tells the officer. She didn't think much of it because she presumed that her permit extended across the state border, which it doesn't. And not only did it not extend across the border, New Jersey itself has some pretty strict gun laws. So she was charged with illegal possession of a firearm and possession of the hollow point bullets, which are just totally illegal in New Jersey. She went through quite an ordeal. I mean, from being arrested initially to she got out, she went back to work. New Jersey ended up putting out a warrant for her arrest. They came and arrested her in Pennsylvania to take her back. She was locked up for a while away from her family. She was facing a minimum of three years just for having the gun, not for doing anything with it. It existed in her purse in the state of New Jersey, three years. But the NRA stepped in, they got her out. She was later pardoned by Chris Christie. So if the NRA doesn't have an issue with race, then what is it? Well, like I said before, it's usually about serving their own goals. In the cases of both McDonald and Allen, they were up against laws that the NRA already didn't like. They were just good reasons to have that fight. In the case of Philando Castile, there was nothing to win and a lot to lose. The best case scenario for the NRA was that there was a moral victory, and the downside was turning off what they could say was a more important base. That became a little more evident very shortly after they made the brief statement about Castile's murder, when they unveiled a new initiative in support of America's law enforcement, Cars for Freedom, Back Our Blue. So it seems to be the case was, why take a stand against one cop right before you launch a campaign to capitalize on all of them. And this is what I'm saying. I don't think the NRA is necessarily bad. They certainly shouldn't be seen as an enemy. But that doesn't make them your friend. If the Philando Castile situation showed us anything about the NRA, it's that they are more than happy to stand up for the principles of gun ownership when there's something to gain. Otherwise, we're all on our own. I think that's pretty much going to wrap it up for this week. Once again, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us at the Common Sense Underground page on Facebook. You can reach me personally at Parsons on Twitter. One more time, share this podcast with one person. Do it now. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. This isn't freedom. Freedom. Yeah.